Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, the novel Little Stones is a thinly veiled autobiographical account of Elizabeth Kuyper's childhood in Zimbabwe and her migration to Australia. So, Liz, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, words. The opening of this story has the central character, Hannah, fascinated with words. And one of the ones I love, Muruhuru. How do you pronounce that? (laughs) It's Mudududu. And it's the Shona word for a motorbike. And as you can hear, it's the sound of the motorbike starting up. And it's quite special. Now, it says something about Hannah. She's fascinated with words. How old is she? About 11. Yes. Yeah. But she's in Zimbabwe. But this notion of words, I think, is very significant in your story um, because it speaks to Hannah's relationship with the housemaid Gogo. There are ties with the school curriculum and and notions of identity. The importance of words and the Shona language in Zimbabwe? I think it's incredibly important and language is such a vital part of culture and um, that's really what I tried to explore in the book because a loss of language can be a loss of culture and identity and we see that play out through some of the Shona classes in the novel. You've got one student, Shimizo, that's uh, berated for not knowing her own language but at some ways it's it's taught in the curriculum but also then it's not as significant or as important so an, a native would not be wanting to necessarily speak the language sort of thing that conflict I think, I think that's what's so sad about it is um in the curriculum they're trying to instill this um sense of national identity but the harsh reality is that you won't be able to get a good job, a, a high-paying job, if you don't have proficiency in English. And I think that's why the Shona teacher gets so upset with the student, because she's losing a part of herself. And it means that, again, colonialism is still having mm. that impact. So in order to succeed, you've got to nece- necessarily get rid of your own language. You Indeed. Know, that post-colonial uh, attitude. Now, Hannah's 11, as we've said, and she sees the world in very simple terms. I mean, what's the value of such a young protagonist? I think I wanted to explore some of the issues from the perspective of a young protagonist because I think it it allows for like a greater insight um, without necessarily getting bogged down in the... Some people in Australia might not know the political, cultural, economic context of Zimbabwe, but that's a really nice way to be exposed to it. Yes, and in fact, one of those... um, Issues, which comes out in one of the words Hannah's confused by, is war vets, which is in fact short for... War veterans. And what's going on? What's happening there? So at the time the novel is set, the early 2000s in Zimbabwe, uh, the Mugabe regime had started the process of land reclamation. And so we had war veterans or war vets coming in and taking the farms. But of course, Hannah is just hearing this word sort of lobbied around war vets and she doesn't really understand what it means. And the significance of that. And the significance is, if we as a reader look further into it, um, well, they were just coming in and taking the farms. The consequences of such action? 
I mean, devastating, devastating on the for the economy. Um, after the land reclamation process, you had, you know, it wasn't just white farmers who were impacted. It was all the people working on the farms, um, the exports, the economy just it, it collapsed. And what was the reason for it? What was the thinking behind all of that? How was it allowed to happen? I am sympathetic to the to the rationale behind it. Because once a group of people has had such um, dispossession, I can understand that uh, retaliatory, um, you know, the British people did come and they did invade and they did take away the land from the Shona people. Um, but the difficulty is how to how to adequately um, make reparations for that. And as you can tell, it didn't didn't work out. Yeah, well, it, it was a, an undisciplined uh, takeover in many ways. So the consequences could only be economically disastrous, so nobody wins, which is the unfortunate thing. Um, But again, like a lot of uh, British Empire acquisitions, Australia included, we're still facing that challenge of addressing uh, how the Indigenous have been treated. Moving on, though, Mugabe was the president at the time, uh, and his regime sort of represented a, a patriarchal dominance And I think in many ways you don't go into that as such, but you do have Hannah's father, Steve Price, Mm. and his behaviour. He wants to exert a form of absolute control. It seems to be a sort of parallel with what was going on in terms of the control in Zimbabwe. There are, yeah, certainly um, mirrored aspects of that relationship. And I do think that uh, military control, uh, political control, corruption, it all stems from a sort of patriarchal control as well. And you can see that playing out in the relationship between Hannah and her father and the mother as well. Yes, well, we're going to come to the mother because there's been a breakdown in the relationship and Hannah's shifted between the two. But the way Steve Price treats Hannah, uh, she doesn't kiss him on the cheek at one stage because he's been smoking, doesn't like the smell, and uh, he slaps her, sort of thing. It's 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 violent, um, lacking in any sort of awareness or understanding. It seems it's violent and confronting, but it's also it's also a little insidious. It's it's not so confronting that one sort of uh, reels away. Um, you know, I don't think it's uncommon, certainly in Zimbabwe at the time, to receive a smack if you were being naughty. But it's more this sort of. Um, continual insidious control and manipulation and i think it shows the complexity of having those uh family violence domestic uh relationships but it also speaks to another thread that goes through this book which is about the assumptions people make about how uh others should behave so the patriarchal dominance is based on an assumption that we're entitled to it sort of thing, uh, Mugabe's uh, regime and, and entitlement. But even that assumption about how to treat those of a different race, how to treat women, is also mirrored in some of the, uh, in, in smaller ways. The grandfather, for example, who's been thrown off his farm, etc., is talking to Hannah about one of her friends and... Um, he makes assumptions. He does. He um, 
uh, Hannah's talking about one of her good friends, Diana, um, who's a very good runner. And they had a little fun day swimming at the pool. And the grandfather makes this comment that, oh, you know, I'm sure she's good at running, but, you know, probably not the best swimmer. And you can see there, even though ostensibly the grandfather is a likable character, there is still that underlying current of assumptions and racism. Yeah. And, and they're embedded in any society, uh, which is, is a, a frustration for some. Hannah's mother, um, basic, well, she's working in the stock exchange, but also her interests uh, don't necessarily conform. <laughs> she's into amateur theatre. Indeed. I think she's quite an interesting character. She's a single mother. Um, she's involved with this um, amateur theatre crew with a lot of um, queer characters in the periphery, which at the time in early Zimbab- early 2000s Zimbabwe, still very conservative. Um, sodomy was still illegal, um, as they referred to it. And so I think she is this kind of unique, um, pushing boundaries. And again, single mother in Zimbabwe, quite remarkable. Yeah. So, and she manages to negotiate, shall we say, Steve Price's behaviour and um, I, is able to, to raise Hannah. But I think we can go further into the background here uh, in terms of the institutions in Zimbabwe, which are also sustaining the colonial patriarchy. There's a lesson talked about at the school on Moses and the Egyptians uh, in the school chapel and the iniquity of the fathers will be visited on the children. Now, you can see that sort of repressive uh, attitude in terms of of the religion and how uh, being taught, not necessarily um, relevant to the Shona um, people or ag- ignoring their own uh, Indeed, culture and customs, and and it is true the iniquities of the fathers were visited upon their sons. Well, we can take that further because yes, the children now suffer in many ways. How? Well, again, it's a product of um, product of everything that came before, and I think it speaks again to this the, when we're talking about patriarchal dominance, this desire for revenge, for bloodshed, as opposed to something more reconciliatory. Mm. Um, and again, biblical. Biblical in nature. Mm. But I mean, Hannah's living with the legacy of her father's behaviour. Zimbabwe is living with the legacy of Mugabe's regime. So in some ways, you know, the, the sins of the father will be visited um, on a country that has to take on board those challenges and, and, how and does, move forward. how does Zimbabwe deal with that and how does Hannah deal with that? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, now... I don't want to give the ending away. Um, Hannah's father is now found in a a sort of uh, challenging position, Mm. but he still strikes out. He's in no position to strike out, uh, but he does. He verbally attacks Hannah, um, and Hannah uses this as a means of moving forward. Now, without giving the ending away too much, are you able to sort of um, outline that a bit more? And the significance of that moment? I think, well, I wouldn't call the novel a coming-of-age novel, but it's certainly we follow Hannah on the sort of cusp of teenagehood and having to grapple with these very big changes in her life, one of them being the changing relationship with her father and to her country. And I think what she has to learn is she can either be subsumed by everything going on or she can take something from it and spin it and use it in a way to make herself stronger. And I think we see that 
with the relationship with Steve as well as um, some of the events that happened throughout the novel mm. without giving too much away. Without giving too much away. I mean, the reader's going to have to uh, look at it and read it for themselves to find out what's uh, what happens to Steve. I think they should because mm. it's quite interesting <laughs> uh, and ties in with what's going on in Zimbabwe. You do, of course, there's an epilogue then about uh, the fact that Mugabe actually had to resign. What's the situation at the moment in, in Zimbabwe? Do you so know? the former Vice President Emerson Monangagwa, uh, who ironically was the Minister for Justice for a period of time, despite being heavily involved in numerous um, corruption scandals, he is now the President um, following a military coup. But again, just a few days ago, there's been a few more rumours that he might not be around much longer. So it's very tenuous at and the moment. the people of Zimbabwe, how's it Coping economically, um, what's the situation? So I was last there about two years ago. Um, the Zimbabwe dollar is gone. It's no longer in circulation. You know, once you're um, printing $300,000 notes, $3 billion notes, um, the currency isn't worth the That was one of the amusing things in the story, you know, being handed several thousand dollars, which was, you know, 20 cents. Exactly. Um, So they're using US currency now. And I think, you know, going back, you do see the resilience, you know, people will make do, they will get hot water generators, they will, you know, buy burglar bars, they'll, um, yeah, use US currency. I think the endurance of the Zimbabwean people is quite impressive, but the situation is still The struggle still continues. Well, thank you very much, Liz, uh, for coming in today. The book is Little Stones. Uh, The author, Elizabeth Kuiper, and it's a University of Queensland press release. Indeed. Thank you, you. Liz. Ewan. Well, you've just clarified something for me there, Elizabeth. uh, A friend of mine just came back from Zimbabwe and he showed me a 25 billion, not million, 25 billion dollar note and... uh, Asked if I, you know, wanted one because he'd sort of picked up a whole lot. But they've actually switched to the US dollar, have they, officially? So this might have been more of a, uh, a souvenir. A relic of the past, yeah. I think. Yeah. Use, use them as wallpaper. You mentioned that. No, that <laughs> but I have Sophie Cunningham with me this morning. Now, Sophie is a multi-talented author. She's got a, a, a bio that I'm going to read this out uh, by way of introduction. She's a former publisher and editor and co-founder of the Stella Prize. She's now an adjunct professor at RMIT University's non-slash-fiction writing lab. Sophie has written five books, Geography, Bird, Melbourne. The fourth one was Warning, the Story of Cyclone Tracy, and her fifth and latest book, which we'll be talking about today, is City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death, and the Need for Forest, published by Text Publishing. Sophie Cunningham, welcome to Publish or Not. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, my first, most obvious question, I guess, is why did you choose trees to be the theme of your book? At the risk of sounding a bit cute, I was going to say the trees chose me, and there is some truth in that, in that it was, I didn't set out to write a book. I was writing a series of of essays. I didn't even set out to write a series of, of essays. I was living in the United States for three years. I was having to travel a lot for reasons that I go into in, in the book. I didn't have a work permit. There wasn't a proper workspace for me. So I just started writing through various things that were, were happening. And I thought if it did turn into a book, it would be a book about walking. But then I realised that writing about walking, because I mean, I do a lot of walking in the book wasn't really enough to capture the the issues that I wanted to talk about and yeah. I realized that the other thing that I was doing that were as important to the work I was doing was um 
looking at trees and thinking about trees. So there's a specific essay in there where I talk about the eucalyptus in California and the fact that a lot of Californians want all the trees removed, eucalyptus trees removed. And you were helping a lot of other people to see the trees you were looking at by starting up an Instagram uh, following, Soph Tree of the Day, if listeners want to get onto that. Yes, um, and that started, I think, partly because my friends of mine that aren't lovers of trees got a bit exhausted by my social media feed and they suggested I set up a separate account, which I did. But in fact, that account, um, I've, been, I've posted it almost every day for about three and a half years now. That's quite extraordinary. And people send me trees, oh, and yeah. so it's, yeah. it's, it's, which is a relief because when I'm in Melbourne for long periods of time, the Carlton Gardens has been pretty worked over, in term, which I live near, in terms of trees. I, was, I can't always get out to get oh, sure. exciting and, trees from around the place. And you've got trees from a number of continents. Now, San Francisco features very heavily in your book as well as Melbourne. Uh, was it just circumstance that you were writing about San Francisco? It seems so rich for describing trees and the relationships animals have to them. What drew you to San Francisco? That was uh, a work, um, my, my wife's work. It took me there, and I had I have always been a big lover of California. I found myself more ambivalent about San Francisco, but it is an incredibly interesting city and 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 interesting place. The um and I was surrounded by a tree. I suddenly just realised that trees were very controversial. There'd be notes on trees saying things like, "I have to remove this tree for." some reason please please don't be angry call me on this number if you want to discuss it right. and i'll see more and i realized that there are lots of little bylaws in which people who own shops were responsible for any trees in the vicinity yet if they didn't care for them inverted commas properly they were then fined a lot of money so it's so this sense about to account in, yeah. it, it's sort of like this sort of small government gone mad so there was this real tension about the, the city saying we want to have a green city but a lot of the shopkeepers in the mission and, and, and the economic situation in San Francisco is a fairly um, extreme one of either extreme wealth, a lot of homelessness, a lot of poverty. It was very hard for people to maintain the, the, the trees properly. So I, I, I use this phrase in the book about every tree has a story to tell. And I actually realised that almost every time I asked someone about a tree, I would get these incredible stories, some of them about social and, and cultural stories, not really about the, the tree in question at all. So that's sort of what kicked off. It was San Francisco was the um, kicked kicked off my interest. But there is something else about San Francisco and Melbourne, and that is how similar the cities are. Yeah. Uh, they um, started as a result of a gold rush. That is, I mean, San Francisco was extant and, and so was Melbourne, but the gold rush is what made those cities explode. Uh, they have it's similar um, architecture in some ways, even though I mean it's, it's a sort of crazy Victorian. It's it's timber, but there were a lot of a lot of Australian or a lot of people that ended up living in Australia went to San Francisco yeah. first. And in fact, as I found out when I was researching the book, including my forebears, I hadn't known that. Uh, that's one of the fun things about working on a book yeah, like this is you do fi- you do find out yeah. a lot of these things. Um, it's not just San Francisco, Portland. Quite a few of those West Coast cities have quite a lot of echoes with colonial Australian cities. When I was uh, in San Francisco, first and only time a couple of years ago, someone described it as Melbourne in a Sydney setting. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, Yeah. except that there is something. It is a small city. It's 900,000 people. 
you've got Silicon Valley on the on the to one side, and so they're just they're just running out of housing, which does put and it's a very left lefty city uh, or liberal city would be the word the Americans would use in a country that's undergoing a lot of stress. So it it sort of does have a, a history of social welfare and caring for these issues, which other cities don't. But that's sort of crumbling. That's yeah. sort of collapsing. Now, beyond the city itself, you take us out into the redwood forest. There are some fantastic descriptions you've got of embracing these trees, these the the tallest trees on the planet. Uh, the correct word is sequoia. Am I saying yeah, it correctly? That's right. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit, little about? Uh, the way it made you feel uh, embracing some of these trees for the first time? The, um, the, it, this is a technicality, but it ended up being quite an important one. They're the largest trees on the planet. They're not the tallest trees oh, on the planet. Okay. I think certainly the Mount Australians, Australia's mountain ash would possibly – some of them may be taller. I should have done my homework. But there was I did a lot of reading about volume by g- girth and volume, and I sort of got lost a bit in all the figures that were being thrown around. go up to about 100 metres, I think you were saying, towards the end. And Yes, yeah. and I think the sequoia are more, a mere 90. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they're, they're much wider. I mean, they're, they're, they've got a huge, enormous bases. Mm. And, in fact, Kauri, New Zealand's. New Zealand's Cowrie are even wider again, but they're shorter. No, I'm just thinking the listeners probably thinking that uh, Sophie has got a lot of amazing facts in here, and that's one of the things you confess to in the book that you love. I think you've got a bit of Captain Fact in you, uh, yeah. Sophie. These incredible facts that give you so much joy and beauty that are springboards into these personal musings. So I'm talking with Sophie Cunningham about her book, City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death and the Need for a Forest. Sophie, uh, looking at some of the other cities, in while you were in New York, you were working with what you've described as dinner plate crabs. I think they're technically horseshoe crabs. You're involved with a bunch of volunteers in tagging them. Is that right? Yes, they, they're really weird. They're sort of one that's, they're called prehistoric, which basically means that they haven't changed for millions of years. They haven't evolved to another form, unlike. I don't know, wombats don't look like they did a few million years ago. but um, Not like the diprotodon. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they they used to be used for bait and all kinds of things. But in recent years, that was realised, they have this amazing pale blue, quite beautiful blood. And it was realised that it could be used to develop vaccines and used in medical development of medical products. And so they're now being um, hunted to extinction. But because of how policy works around these kind of issues, the, the various research labs claim to save the crabs by only draining half their blood and then throwing them back. But they're not really. And, to and then they kind of then, then they yeah. often die anyway. So it's this kind of. In fact, in general, um, with a lot of my work, I find there's always sort of there's often policies in play, but they they become meaningless because the bottom line is these crabs are being hunted, and you could use chemical compounds instead of using the crabs. And so we were doing research to kind of see how many had turned up on particular beaches in, in Brooklyn. The, uh, th- that's what amazed me, in Brooklyn, as in the, the borough, the city part of New York, New York. You were just down on the beach uh, of near Coney Island? or Yeah, near, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, um, near, near Coney Island. Yeah. Um, but Brooklyn... New York has lots of wilderness, well, wilderness is putting it too strongly, but wild bits, and that I became really fascinated when I lived there. It's partly on the beaches, partly some of the old parks, and then you've got the more modern parks like Central Park or Prospect Park, but in North Manhattan there are these old remnant, remnant forests. And so 
it was quite dramatic to kind of get to a beach, be surrounded by bits of Brooklyn and be told things like whales were coming back and there has been a kind of improvement in the environmental situation around New York. But anyway, so we were catching these enormous crabs because they gather at a particular time in May around particular moons and they indulge in... Mating group season. six, yeah. basically. So there's often these massive Millions females covered in lots of the small males, and you'd have to kind of lift up the whole cluster yeah. <laughs> and put it on the Quite beach and try. It. Yes, exactly. And um, it was, I All became cause, fascinated though. with them partly because they were obs- yeah. to me obscure and I hadn't heard of them. But we're talking big crabs here, like you'd plates, pick them up. You'd, yeah, ones. you'd pick them yeah. up, and they were kind of very heavy. And in yeah. fact, I oh, I wish I'd remembered this. Fact. Uh, Someone sent fact. me a fact this quite recently. They're not actually crabs. They're something oh, right. else, which Somewhere. is one of the reasons why they look so different. But this has only been discovered. I mm-hmm. mean, this decision that they're no longer crabs has only been made quite recently. Bring it back, uh, the stories back to Melbourne. There's a, quite a few essays about Melbourne. Now, you mentioned before it started from a love of walking around the city. You've retraced some historic walks in Melbourne. One is Rani the Elephant. Tell us about Rani the elephant and why you retraced her steps. Rani was the first elephant in Australia. I can't even remember now how I came across this random fact. But a bit like the horseshoe crabs, I would become quite interested in just stuff yeah. and then try and follow that. Yeah, it's amazing follow how you've, that uh, through. You know, wove them all together. And the detail about her that really first got my attention was that when she arrived from Calcutta in 1870s, I can't yeah. quite remember the date, um, she was held at the Port Melbourne police station and the building still exists. And I, I love that. You went in and actually asked the person yeah, at, at the desk. At, at this, the desk. Um, I asked if it was a police station. I didn't ask her if she knew that an elephant had been held there 150 <laughs> years ago. But um, And then and then she was walked to the Roy- the zoo in, in Royal Park because that already existed at night so as not to frighten the crowds. And apparently right. elephants being walked through cities have historically over the centuries caused a huge drama like people there have been riots and people want to see them and she and then I learned that she'd held she there were a lot of storms on the trip but so she was on a boat and she they had she was sort of on deck with a hut around her and she'd have to hold um, put her trunk around the mast of the ship because the storms were so bad elephants are very social animals and then I just wondered what would it be and they're incredibly bright animals they're as bright as probably brighter than Quite a few humans. Um, What it would be like to arrive, be put in a tiny little terrace building and then walk for nine kilometres at night. And so we we, we did this walk at night, a group of us, and walking through Royal Park. And there are bits of Royal Park which still have some remnant bush land. And it was really, it was a way of just trying to, you can't really enter an experience like that, but you can at least give it some respect and think about what it might have been like for her. Well, it brought the history of our hometown to light that I'd never heard of. Now, I've got to ask you in the time we have remaining, you've talked about some incredible trees around Melbourne, and this is the the theme of your book. For people listening in, what are some of the trees, maybe top uh, three or four trees, that you recommend you've got to see in Melbourne? I am a north sider, but um, I'd say that um, Moreton Bay Fig I write about in the Carlton Gardens, known as the meeting tree, uh, really um, sort of down near the end of where... Gertrude Street hits, the and that's park. still a meeting tree of sorts. Isn't it, it is, it, 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 but it used to actually have um, um, Doug Nichols used to preach yeah. there, and and yeah. it was a kind of significant meeting place. 
Um, I really like the lemon-scented gums down near Melbourne Uni at the end of Swanson Street, which I think the Burley Griffins planted, but uh, people aren't sure. Well, it's not on the record. But. Now, what, what college is that next to? Which part of oh. Melbourne Uni? Is it Ormond College? No, it's not Ormond. No. It's, it's, Newman? The, it's the Newman. It's Newman. the one that yeah. they designed. And there are quite a few significant red gums um, which have been culturally modified or scar trees. There's a fantastic one near St Kilda um, Junction and, in fact, the roads continue to be rebuilt around that tree which would be more than 400 years old and is very tall. Is that a river red gum with a canoe cut out of it? I don't know if it's a canoe but it has been... It's had tools have been made but I don't think it was necessarily a canoe. All right, now, final question because we have to wrap up but... Uh, you mentioned your cat during the book, and at a certain point you go, how do I get this far without not mentioning? How is your cat doing? That's really, you should have warned me. He he died a couple of weeks oh, ago. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, okay. He was right. 17, so I think we should just move right okay. along. Well, at that point, <laughs> it's one of those things. We'll wrap it up there. So back to you, David. Well, I was talking with Elizabeth Kuiper about her novel, Little Stones. And I was talking with Sophie Cunningham about her uh, book, City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death and the Need for a Forest, published by Text Publishing. And mine was from University of Queensland Press. That takes us out. Thank you for your help and assistance over the last five weeks. My pleasure. Ian.